see you all this morning. Thank you for your hospitality. And would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, a day that we will never see again, but we just thank you for your loving kindness. But most of all, we thank you for the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And so, Father, here I am. Please speak through me, because I'm reminded that, as Jesus said, apart from you, I can do nothing. And so, Father, we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by means of God, the Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me because I desperately need your help. And so, Father, we thank you for this time. We ask these blessings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I would like to invite your attention to the gospel according to Luke chapter 10. And we will begin our reading with verse 25 and conclude our reading with verse 37. And when you have it, you can respond by saying, Amen. Amen. And um, I'm certainly grateful and appreciative for this topic because we are um, planting a church in a under-resourced community. Um, it is situated kind of in a greater Houston area, but is also considered Humble, Texas, in what is called the Foxwood-Kinswick community. And within that community is two Title I schools which you know Title I schools, 50% of the students are on free lunch. But in particular, at Jones Elementary School, that school in particular, 90% of their students are on free lunch. And 40% of the students that go to that school are being raised by a single parent. And so, as you can see, that community desperately needs a gospel-centered church and so we want to be able to go to that community and reach people with the love of God, see lives change with the word of God and make Jesus' name famous in that community. And so I solicit your prayers as we get ready to launch September the 9th in that community. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25, and it reads, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, designed to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, to the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, you go, and do likewise. I want to label the message, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? When I was 16 years old, I went to the Sam Houston High School and tried out for the basketball team. I made the basketball team, but I wasn't Michael Jordan or LeBron James, as everybody liked to call me, say I look like LeBron James now. Um, I had no skills like that, but I barely made it. I made the cut. And when I made the cut, we started having scrimmages, practices, running what is called horses. Well, on one occasion, I fell and injured myself. I twisted my ankle. And it was so bad, I could barely walk. And so when I went home, my mother said, I think we need to take you to um, the urgent care to get this checked out. And so when she took me to the urgent care, the doctor checked out my ankle. He used, as we all know, an x-ray machine. And what he discovered on the x-ray machine was a hairline fracture. And so he began to get it wrapped up for me, and they gave me crutches and sent me on my way. And so I got, it was pretty cool. I got a lot of attention because everybody wanted to help me out, right? Um, But the doctor would have never discovered that hairline fractured unless he used that x-ray. My brothers and sisters, there are many of us dealing with some things within our hearts, some hairline fractures within the crevices of our hearts. And by God's grace, he, God uses the Word of God to what is called x-ray our hearts to get to the root of the ish, issue. Because many of us have a whole lot of issues. We come here Sunday after Sunday. We get into our groups. We fellowship with one another. Uh, We see our neighbors. We don't even say hello to our neighbors. We just come home from work, drive into the garage, and we don't even 
wave hello. And oftentimes the reason we do that is because there are some things going on in our hearts that we have failed to address. Jesus, the master teacher, understood his context. He understood the disciples so well that they dealt with some of these same issues. They dealt with it so bad that he takes the time out to use an event to teach them that which was going on in their heart. See, it started in Luke chapter 9. The disciples didn't even, couldn't even comprehend the fact that Jesus was on his way to the cross. They were expecting Jesus to come in to overthrow the Roman government and to set up his millennial kingdom. And so anytime Jesus talked about death, it was like, no, Lord, not you. And then to add insult to injury, in Luke chapter 9, they asked Jesus the question, which one of us can sit on your throne? So here they, they got this concept of the kingdom all jacked up. And so here when we come to our text, Jesus, knowing his disciples' heart, orchestrates all of the events to teach them a lesson. There's a man in our text who comes to Jesus. He's a biblical scholar. He's a theologian. And he asks Jesus a simple question, but yet profound question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Now, this dude that asks Jesus this question is a scholar. He's a theologian. He understands soteriology. He understands anthropology. He understands eschatology. But yet and still, he wants to know how can he inherit eternal life. Why does he ask this question? Luke informs us that he really wants to trip Jesus up. He wants Jesus to stumble, but little do he know the very breath that he's breathing to ask this question, Jesus is giving him that very breath. So he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a simple but yet profound question that this lawyer asked. And Jesus, as he, you see in verse 25, verse 26, Jesus says, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You know what is interesting about this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It is a question that each and every one of us, whether believer or an unbeliever, want an answer to. There are some of you, whether it's on your job, whether it's in your community, um, that person that is next to you want an answer to this question. But what is interesting, he is saying, how can I inherit this? He thinks that this is something that if somebody died, that it could just be given to him. But Jesus responds with a question. He says, you're a scholar, you're a theologian. What does your Bible say? 
because this man is familiar with the first five books of, of the law. He understands the law because in, during the first century, if you wanted to be a scribe or a Pharisee, you had to know the Torah. Not only did you have to know the Torah, you had to be able to, to explain it and to apply it to everybody's life. But what the religious leaders would do is not only would they explain it, not only would they apply it, but they would also add stuff to it. And so this lawyer says, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he gives him Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He gives the correct answer. And notice what the text says in verse 28. And he said to him, you, Jesus said to him, and you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice Jesus didn't say, do this and you shall have eternal life. Do this and you shall be saved. But he says, do this and you shall live. Jesus, the master teacher, begins to create uh, some type of tension within this lawyer's mind because he don't understand why Jesus would say, do this and you will live. Because in his mind, he believes that his neighbor is somebody that is Jewish. In his mind, he believes that his neighbor is somebody that is just like him. And so Jesus begins to upset his equilibrium. Notice Jesus, he, notice what he says in verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Notice in verse 29, but he desired to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus, you just told me that I was correct, and if I do this, I will live, and now he wants to know. Because Jesus begins to basically upset his sense of balance. He, Jesus knows exactly where this man is at. Jesus knows exactly where the disciples are at in their thinking. And this man wants to justify his thinking. He wants to justify his opinion because he thinks if he loves his fellow Jews, then he's okay, then he's good. But Jesus is pressing them further along than that. It's more than just loving your fellow Jews. It's more than just loving those who are within your community. And so to press his point even further, Jesus begins to tell a story. And as Jesus begins to tell this story, it is called a parable, which literally means to throw alongside. There's a spiritual truth that Jesus wants to communicate to this lawyer and also to his disciples. 
And so as he begins, he says, there was a man going down Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. And Jericho is about 300 feet below sea level. So he says this man is walking about 17 miles to get to Jericho. This is a long, hard way to get to Jericho. And normally on this route, there be people, there be robbers who are trying to get the person who is by themselves. And so this man is traveling, and I'm pretty sure he's tired, and he's going through what is called, what we call the inner city. This man is going through the hood. And he is by himself. And so as he's traveling through the hood, he gets jumped, he gets mugged, he gets beaten, and they take all of his clothes off. And they leave this man half dead. And as this man is laying on the side of the road, up comes pastor. Pastor probably is getting ready to go to the temple and make a few sacrifices for the community. And the pastor, he sees this man laying on the side of the road half dead. But the pastor just looks. Now, the text don't say, but I would probably say I give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's busy. He's running late, and he wants to get to the temple on time. And so he just walks on by. And the next person that comes by is the deacon. And the deacon looks at the man as the man is laying there all beaten, bruised, and bloody. And the deacon, and then we already know the deacon is the, the servant. At least deacons normally tend to the physical matters of the ministry. But the deacon don't even do anything. The deacon just walk on by. But then comes a Samaritan. Now, if you know anything about Samaritans, Samaritans are known as half-breeds. The Jews hate Samaritans. Because if you know anything about the the Samaritan history, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians took the children of Israel captive in bondage. But in the midst of captivity, they began to intermingle with the Jewish people, and they produced what is known as a half-breed. And so the full-blooded Jews just hate Samaritans. But the very one that the Jews hate and some of the disciples wouldn't even think about them serving this person is the one who begins to help this man. And so he begins to to put some oil, he begins to put some wine on this man's wounds, and he 
bandages his wounds, and he begins to take them to the local motel. And he tells the manager, take care of, take, take care of this man until I come back. And anything else that you provide for this man, I want you to put that on my tab. And when I come back, I'll take care of it. The Samaritan of all people takes care of this gentleman. And Jesus asks the lawyer, so who proved to be a neighbor? And y'all know what the man said? See, he hated the Samaritans so much he couldn't even pronounce the Samaritan's name. He said, the one that showed mercy. And then Jesus told him, you go do likewise and left him there. And so the question becomes, where are you in this parable? I know some of you, you like to identify with the Samaritan, but that's not the point of this parable because you need to see yourself as this lawyer. Not only should you see yourself as the lawyer, but you should also see yourself as the good pastor and the good deacon who, who have all the religion, who know how to teach, who know how to preach, who know how to pray, who know how to sing praises unto God, but they can't even help their neighbor. Jesus is telling this parable so that you see your own sinfulness. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. That's why Luke has put this parable here so that you might be able to see your own sinfulness and recognize that you can't live up to the standards of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But who can do that is the question. Who can perfectly do that? We can't do it apart from the grace of God. None of us can live up to the standards of God unless Jesus come and die, be raised from the grave, and give you the power to do it. That's the point. That's the point. So I want to, before I take my seat, I want to look at three implications of this text, and then I'll take my seat. Three implications. Christ destroys racial boundaries. Christ in this parable destroys racial boundaries. I remember when I went to Bible college, and I had to, to work and go to school, and I was getting in debt. Y'all know how student loans are. I mean, you work, you work, and you, you can't pay these loans, and the loans just stack up. 
and I was in over my head in student loans. And so the last day of class, young lady slipped me an envelope. And she said, Dion, don't, don't read this until you get home. See, young Caucasian lady slipped me this. And I said, okay, I'll be obedient. And so when I got home, it was a card in there. She wrote a note, and I read the note, but in that card was a check. That check was written to pay my whole college student loans. It had been paid in full as a result of that check. Here it is. We sit in class together. I'm a black guy. She's a Caucasian lady. We didn't talk much, but she knew of my need. She didn't let my skin color dictate the need. That's what, what Christ is doing here. He, he is destroying racial barriers. Notice in the text, verse 33. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So here it is, the Samaritan who the Jews hated, was the one who proved to be a neighbor. But while the Jews hated the Samaritan, the Samaritan proved to be more Christian than the Jews. Because notice that the, the text says that he saw a need, he felt that need, and then he acted upon that need. Do you know the only way that you and I can see a need, act on a need, is because of the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who destroys racial barriers. That's the mystery that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 3, that the Jews would that the Gentiles would be joint heirs with the Jews. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But in this text, not only do we see Christ destroying racial barriers, but notice in the text that Christ destroys religious boundaries. Notice what the text says in verse 33 to 34, it says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, the law says that if you see somebody that looks dead, you just walk on by. You don't want to be caught next to a dead person. 
So as Jesus tells this story, he is showing his audience that once Christ breaks through, once uh, the gospel comes in, it liberates us from the law. You might be asking, what do you mean by that? I, I thought we, we, kind of, we live by the law. I thought we live by this law. Yeah, we, Christ has fulfilled the law for each and every one of us, right? And when we look to Jesus, Christ helps us live out that which God had given in the Old Testament. It was Scott who wanted to, he was a journalist who went, wanted to do a biography on Mother Teresa. So he makes his way to Calcutta. And as he was looking at Mother Teresa and just kind of in awe by Mother Teresa, he noticed something about Mother Teresa. Her feet were deformed. He didn't want to ask why her feet were deformed. So he caught somebody else because, you know, you ask somebody about their feet, they'll be like, what are you looking at my feet for? So he just took the time out to ask somebody else about her feet. And what they told her, the reason that Mother Teresa's feet are deformed is because Every time we get a new shipment of shoes, good shoes, Mother Teresa makes sure that everybody gets a good pair of shoes. And by the time they get to her, there's really nothing left. And she just takes the leftovers. That's why her feet are deformed. My brothers and sisters, we should see people who are in need be moved by people who are in need and act upon it. And in us acting upon it, it should lead to some sacrifices, even if it costs you your feet being deformed. Not only Christ destroys racial boundaries, destroys religious boundaries, but finally, Christ destroys self-righteousness. As we look at this text, if you hadn't caught it yet, the real issue, the real root of the problem is self-righteousness. This man thinks that he could earn his right to live forever with God by what he do. Jesus is so cold as a teacher, he sets him up. And when he sets him up, he creates frustration. And this frustration is designed to lead you to the cross. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you just wanted to pray. You just wanted to read your word. You wanted to grow as a Christian. You just wanted to be involved in everything. And the next thing you know, you're feeling burnt out. You're feeling frustrated. 
And the next thing you know, you start showing up three Sundays a month. Then it goes down to two Sundays a month. Then it goes down to one Sunday a month. Next thing you know, we don't see you in two months. We don't see you in three months and you're feeling tired. You're feeling burnt out. Have you ever been there where you just felt so frustrated, just felt so tired, just felt so burnt out? Could it be that you are operating in your own strength and not operating in the strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Whenever you find yourself in a position like that, it is designed to push you to to our Savior, not push you from our Savior. Whenever you find yourself in a position of frustration, you just want to leave everybody, you don't want to be bothered with nobody, you feel burnt out, you feel tired, that's the perfect time for you to cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, I desperately need you. I can't do this without you. Lord, can you help me? That's when the power comes. That's when you're able to live out living to reach out to your neighbor. I remember when I was young, I was a Michael Jackson fan. I wanted to give me a Jerry Curl like Michael Jackson. Those of y'all... Y'all grew up in the 80s. You remember the Jerry Curl, some of us black folks wear. We get that kit put in there. I wanted me a Jerry Curl just like Michael Jackson. And so I also wanted, y'all remember when he did Beat It and Thriller? I wanted to get me a beaded jacket. And uh, everybody had a beaded jacket. My mom, she, she tried to get me a beaded jacket. She went to the store, and she looked for the beaded jacket, and she came home with a Thriller jacket. I was like, I ain't want that Thriller jacket. (laughs) So I I, I started having nightmares because of that Thriller jacket. And so my neighbor next door, he had the beaded jacket. And so I asked him, could we exchange? And so we exchanged, and my mom got mad because I had the the beaded, I took the guy's beaded jacket. See, you better go get that jacket I bought you. But what was interesting, if you look at Michael Jackson's career, was that Michael Jackson had all the right moves. He can sing, he can dance, and you know that was a battle between him and Prince. Because, you know, Prince, all he can do is play a bunch of instruments and sing and but Michael Jackson, he couldn't really play instruments, but he had the moves and he could sing. But when you look at Michael Jackson's life, he had all the right moves. But what is interesting about his life, although he had the right moves, if you would watch him being interviewed with his family, he would call his dad Joseph. He would never say, Daddy, but he would call him Joseph. There was no connection. There was no intimacy. They would never hug one another. There was no affection. 
My brothers and sisters, you can have all the right moves. You can teach, you can preach. But if there is no intimacy with the Father, it means nothing. So make sure that when you're serving, that you're serving with intimacy with the Father. God cares nothing about your self-righteousness because at the end of the day, it's about the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that you get because of what he has done for you on the cross. And if you're an unbeliever and you have not crossed over into being a believer and you're struggling with faith in God, I want to remind you that Christ has died for your past, your present, and your future sins. And all you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this people. But, Lord, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, I just ask in the name of Jesus, help us love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. Because we recognize that we, we can't do this without you. So, Lord, help us. And as we do this, we want to have intimacy with you so that when people meet us, they can sense your presence. They can sense that you are with us. Thank you, Lord, for this time. It is in Christ's name I pray. Amen.